even if the Russian economy is hit, it still does not stop to exist. So yes, there will be less revenues, people will, will consume less this year, next year. The incomes are going down, the quality of life is going down. Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Viglund. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day, seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're talking about the Russian war economy. Russia's invasion of Ukraine in late February launched not only a dangerous time for international military and humanitarian stability, but also a dangerous time for the economies of Russia, Ukraine, and the EU. The war has also shouldered some of the blame for inflation across the globe. We're speaking with Konstantin Sonin, the John Dewey Distinguished Service Professor at the Harris School of Public Policy. Sonin researches political economics, development, and economic theory. He grew up and was schooled in Russia and was living there just before the war began. We'll hear more about that later in the program, but first, some context for what's happening right now in the Russian and Ukrainian war economies. Konstantin Sonin, welcome to the program. Hello. I'd like to begin with um, an overall sense of the economies in both Russia and Ukraine and how the war has affected their overall economic health. So let's start with Russia. And earlier this year, the big story was uh, significant international sanctions, some corporations pulling out of the country, the ruble dropped along with financial markets there. But the Russian economy certainly hasn't dropped off the map. Can you describe the current situation and and how it bodes for the country's future as the war drags on? I think the Russian economy is doing badly, and I think sanctions have uh, a serious impact on the Russian economy. But at the same time, I think that a lot of people expected too, too much from sanctions. So people expected that... Uh, sanctions work like, I don't know, missiles or tanks, that there will be some immediate visible impact. But from what we know about sanctions, when they were used against other countries, that they seriously affect long-term development, but they do not have like a very strong immediate impact. So certainly Russian customers are affected, real incomes have fallen, people run to buy uh, dollars and euros, But at the same time, the sanctions worked extremely effectively blocking imports to Russia. So as a result, because Russian imports are blocked, uh, the demand for euros and dollars from Russian companies, companies that were importing goods from the West, this demand dropped. So the ruble has appreciated since the beginning of the war. So basically, it's actually an effect of sanctions that ruble is now uh, so expensive relative to dollar and euro. Can you explain a little bit why it is that you don't see the impact of such severe sanctions right away and why it's such a long tail? Okay, one thing is that you see some impact. Real incomes have fallen, I think, like about 10%. Uh, The Russian government reports data It reports much less data than it was reported before the war, but some of the reported data points out to a significant drop in real incomes. For example, retail trade has fallen 10%, and there are no increase in savings, which points out that people just have their real incomes 
uh, following, right? right? So people do not have access to what they were, what they have been used to have access to. They no longer are able to go to McDonald's. They no longer watch Netflix. They no longer watch American movies for this year. So um, Russia is banned from all sporting competitions. So there, there is a significant impact. It's just not as devastating as some people would think that economic sanctions could be. But they cannot. And why, why is that? Why is it not as devastating as some people thought it might be? I think this is more about unreasonable expectations. So, like, uh, we know that Iran is under severe sanctions, North Korea is under sanctions, but these countries, they, like, their long-term development is dismal. These countries are not growing. Like, in Iran, people live basically the same way they lived under Shah 50 years ago, right? But at the same time, they're not collapsing in real time. So sanctions... They limit development, but they do not just stop production and consumption. You have written about the Russian government tightening its grip on the private sector, uh, even more so than it had before the war. Can you explain how that happened and how that has affected the war effort? Okay, even before the war, the Russian government was intruding more and more in the private sector. So like for the last more than 10 years, say for 12 years, the Russian government played more and more uh, role in just operating the businesses. So they were prohibiting large businesses to fire employees, basically threatening them with just criminal prosecution if enterprises would fire workers. Since the beginning of the war, the government forced the parliament to pass a huge change in like in legal framework. And basically, the current legal framework allows the government to direct any economic activity. So now it's legal for the government to tell every firm how much to produce, what price to charge, how many, how much to pay people working at these enterprises. They, they're still not, um, say, totally nationalizing the economy, basically because they cannot do this. Putin's government, it's not very capable and efficient. I mean, they would be willing to force all enterprises, for example, not to raise prices, but they do not have capacity to do this. Hmm. Let's talk about the role of oil in all of this. Uh, Europe historically relying heavily on oil and gas from Russia. Uh, and of course, they've seen wildly inflated prices because of the war. Governments are now looking for ways to both reduce reliance and, of course, an embargo on Russian imports by the European Union is set to start on December 5th. What does that mean for Russia's oil economy internally? Oh, I think this is a historical change for the Russian for the Russian economy. The fact that there are no longer imports of oil to uh, the European Union countries, so Russia now almost exclusively switched to uh, China and India, and these countries they uh, request very steep discounts on the on the amount of oil because basically now they um, have almost monopoly power over. Russian exports, at least exports of oil. What what we've seen, what what is already reported in the data is that uh, it seems that the revenues that Russia receives from oil they are falling fast. So they were much less in 
October and November than they were before. So I would expect in the next months with the imports of oil to European Union completely cut off these revenues to fall um, to fall even more. So what does that then do? What what does that look like within Russia to have that kind of drastic change in income from oil? Uh, okay, I think that Russia started this war uh, in a good financial situation. There were foreign reserves, there were a lot of money in the budget, there were it seemed a lot of capacity to run budget deficits because there were no deficit before uh, b- before the war. So even if the Russian economy is hit, it still doesn't stop to exist. So yes, there will be less revenues. People will will consume less this year, next year. Uh, about thirty percent of the Russian uh, of the Russian population has already reported to the government surveyors that. They had to cut the expenditures on food this year. So the incomes are going down, the quality of life is going down, but it's not going down all the way. It's just decreasing perhaps 10% this year, maybe 5% more next year. This is this is bad. I mean, in the United States, the last time incomes have fallen like this was during the Great Depression almost 100 years ago. So this is this is not a small thing we're talking about. This is this is huge. We've also heard uh, a lot about how there are Russians who are fleeing the country uh, because of what's happening there, um, in particular because of the military call up. But can you talk to us about what the potential impact is of losing all of that manpower, talent, intelligence across borders? Okay, one, one thing that I, I, I think is sort of missed in many discussions is that the fact that hundreds of thousands of Russians, perhaps six to 700,000 uh, this, uh, this year, since the beginning of the war, have left Russia is another indication how quality of life deteriorated in Russia. I mean, these are hundreds of thousands of people who are running from a country which is not being bombed, which is not being attacked, and still these people are running, leaving their apartments, jobs, every everything. So this is already a sign of a massive deterioration in the quality of life. And I think this will have a big impact going forward. Because everybody talks about IT specialists, like whole IT companies relocating to Serbia, to Israel, to Armenia. But I personally have, I think, four friends who are teachers of mathematics in Moscow schools. They're just teachers. And they were the best people in their profession before the war. And they are now running and they're opening uh, schools in, in Riga, in Cyprus, because this is just such a outlook of what is going on in Russia is so bad. So they're unlikely to return at any point. Yeah, they're, they're unlikely to return, and they are uh, the cream of the cream. I'm not comparing the fate of Russians with the fate of Ukrainians. I mean, it one thing to flee persecution, another th- thing to flee missile uh, missile attacks. But still, this is like, I think, a great human tragedy. I want to ask you about Vladimir Putin um, and 
whether you think he thinks this is going well, does he continue to believe that the West will will blink? Um, I, I know you've studied uh, what you call the informational bubble around dictators. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that plays out here? Yeah, I, th- I think that uh, Vladimir Putin has a very strong capacity, just like a personal capacity and institutional capacity, meaning the system that he built to adjust the information that he receives to what he believes in. So basically, he believes in his mission that he is, I don't know, protecting Mother Russia from the siege of all other countries in the world, from, I don't know, Ukrainians who threaten Russia, Americans who threaten Russia, gays uh, and LGBT community who are a kind of an acute threat in his mind to Russia. So I think that whatever happens, he just goes into more and more into this state in which he feels that he protects, he, he protects Russia. So like, I mean, a puzzle here is not that he continues with this crazy, uh, crazy war campaign. The puzzle here is that he somehow manages to keep power in Russia being so delusional. But then we've already seen this because I think that German uh, Nazi consular Hitler, he was also sort of delusional, right? And still he was keeping power keeping his loyal subordinates around him up until the very end, up until like Soviet troops entered his bunker, right? So we know that these informational bubbles around the leaders, they could be sort of un- impenetrable. Let's move to Ukraine. And uh, of course, right now, its capital has been plunged into darkness uh, by attacks on the uh, electrical grid, other public infrastructure Exports took a hit when Russia blockaded the Black Sea ports. What is the overall economic picture there after 10 months of war, even as the country has defied expectations militarily? Okay, I think there are two main things that could be said about the Ukrainian economy. One is that it's it's an economy devastated by war. A lot of infrastructure is just literally Gone. destroyed Gone. by Russian missiles. So this is a kind of, for an economist... I mean, you do not need to have an economist. It's just like an accounting problem. They perhaps lost 30 to 40% of their GDP, right? This is like one big thing. Another big thing, I think, about Ukraine is that uh, it appears that they have a much more uh, capable, much more coherent government than than what was believed before the war. So it's not only about prosecuting the war, Like before the war, there was this myth of a completely corrupt, dysfunctional government. But we've seen during these nine months, it's not only a very very good military strategy, not only a very good informational strategy, but they're managing um, millions of refugees. They're they're managing uh, energy supplies. They're managing uh, restoring infrastructure in an extremely, extremely efficient way. I mean, uh, given what we've heard about the corrupt Ukrainian government before the war, it's amazing how um, how efficient they are in doing all these things. They're receiving a massive foreign aid, and this foreign aid, we just see 
that uh, that it goes exactly where it is uh, intended to go, right? I never seen a credible report about anything stolen, which is unheard of in this kind of operation. So I think when the war stops, they will have excellent prospects of growing, just invest, and it will not only be Western help, it will be just businesses from all over the world rushing there just to... To help them rebuild. Yeah, this opportunity to invest and enjoy um, the cooperation of a very efficient government. However, as you noted, uh, GDP has been demolished, and I read a World Bank report saying that uh, extreme poverty in Ukraine is likely to rise tenfold this year and into 2023. Unemployment hit 35% by the second quarter of this year. So can you talk to us about how the war economy is playing out on the ground for people in Ukraine? Okay, so we see basically two things. We see extremely resilient population, extremely resilient businesses. So we see people relocating from the occupied territories to the western Ukraine, to Kiev, and opening their small businesses there. But at the same time, uh, they had almost 10 million refugees in the spring. It's refugees in the neighboring countries. It's perhaps... These people are not called refugees when they relocate inside the country, but perhaps five or ten more millions people were relocated inside Ukraine. I think that for the duration of the, the war, the main task of the government is just to support the not the quality of life, but just survival of the people, right? right. So that, the I, I mean, people have food and they have warm clothing and warm i mean energy is a major issue right now that kids have access to schools for example i'm uh, a member of an advisory board of the kiev school of economics i have been for many years and my colleagues at the kiev school of economics they stay stay there they advise the government they do a lot of fundraising but one important thing that they do they collect money and they build uh, bomb shelters for um, for rural schools, mm. and it's not very expensive. That's like Im- important thing uh, that should be done. The point is that for now it's like a survival mood, right? So people should be safe and warm and fed. Kids should go uh, should get to school and get their schooling. But the the main objective is, of course, to end the war as soon as possible. I wonder if you would tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you grew up in Russia, went to school there. I know you were there shortly before uh, the war began earlier this year. What brought you to the U.S.? Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, I grew up in Russia. I went to school, to university. I got a degree and my first uh, couple of academic jobs in, in Moscow. So in 2015, I had some issues uh, with the Putin government. I was fired from one position because I wrote, I said something in an interview to Spiegel. That's Der Spiegel from Germany? Yeah, Der Spiegel from G- Germany. But I cannot say that I was a political refugee at the time because when I got an opportunity to join the University of Chicago, I mean, the University of Chicago is 
the prime place in the universe to do economics and the kind of economics that I do. So I cannot say that I was just running from Moscow. I thought more about like, a, I don't know, joining Barcelona or Manchester United. It's not just <laughs> taking refuge. But I was spending uh, the summer months in Russia every year. And last year in 2021, uh, I planned to use my sabbatical for um, actually for a year and a half to spend it in Moscow. Mm. But in eight months, the war started. And in 10 days, I started to think that it's too dangerous to be uh, to be there. Also, it was sort of an easy decision to make to run from Moscow. The Russian government criminalized social media uh, writings and they criminalized not only what you write now, but they criminalized basically everything that is on social media, even if it's if it was written like five or ten years ago. And I had a lot of things uh, written ten years ago and five years ago because I was warning about dictatorship and war and all these things. So then I decided to uh, to leave to leave again. <laughs> Well, I have to ask you, you seem pretty outspoken for someone who is critical of the Russian regime, and that doesn't always end well for people. Um, do you fear for your safety even here in the States? Okay, I think that the Russian government cares much more about people who are, are not just intellectuals speaking about dictatorship or uh, issues with human rights or issues about economy. They care about businessmen who finance opposition. They uh, they uh, care about opposition uh, opposition leaders. So I have some friends who are in jail uh, right now. All my other politician friends uh, from Russia they are now exiled. I know people in Europe who I think is at much more risk than uh, than I am here. But also, I mean, of course, this is this is risky, but I think it was risky to write against Putin when I was in Moscow back, back then. It was even riskier 30 years ago to stand against the tanks that the last Soviet government sent in a military coup in 1991. So, okay, there are some risky things that need to be done, right? So let me ask you, um, and this is a crystal ball question, um, how does this end? Does Putin escalate? Uh, does he drag both the Russian and Ukrainian economies into the gutter? Uh, does he declare victory in some places and and end it there? What do you think? Okay, I, I, ho I hope that the Ukrainian army uh, now, they train better, they are better, uh, that they're better armed. I hope they will be even more better armed. I think I hope that the Western governments will increase the quantity and the quality of the munitions that they send to 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 Ukraine. So I hope that the Ukrainian army will uh, defeat the Russian invasion force. And then uh, at this point, I think it's possible to have a kind of sustainable ceasefire. And at in this situation, it will be possible to wait until Putin is dead or uh, dismissed by his um, his subordinates. I think this any responsible 
Russian government will open negotiations, will will withdraw troops from the invaded territories, they'll negotiate the status of Crimea, will negotiate lifting of some sanctions, will negotiate reparations to Ukraine, but perhaps it requires Putin's death or dismissal. Konstantin Sonnen, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. And of course, you can subscribe to The Pie on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.